Whenever victory comes to different areas of life, there are all kinds of traditions to celebrate. Sometimes those traditions can be somewhat shameful. We've all seen on the news before and watching just bewilderment when someone who won a championship for something decided to burn their city down in celebration. I never have quite figured that one out, how that's such a good thing. There are others that are more playful, such as the tradition of looking into the camera after winning a Super Bowl and saying, I'm going to Disneyland. But no matter the celebration, victory is a wonderful feeling. From athletics to music and drama competitions to politics, everyone who enters any kind of contest wants to win. The same is obviously true for those who enter into a battle. No one enters a battle without wanting to win that particular battle, that war. Of course, more is on the line in the battle, but no one enters just because it's part of a spectacle. Everyone wants to come out victorious. They have a cause, a cause in which they believe, and they want to fight for that cause. And they want to fight through any means necessary. I hope you have your Bible open to Psalm 144 tonight. And if you do, you're going to have really the outline to tonight's lesson in your Bible, whether you've got one of the handouts or not. Sometimes we think of David and we depict him as sort of a gentle and at times even almost effeminate character because of his love for the outdoors, his love for sheep, his writing poetry and hymns. But David, we never need to forget, was a fierce warrior. Not only did he physically protect those sheep earlier in his life, but he was also a true warrior later. Of course, we can obviously think of the famous account of David and Goliath. And we remember him winning that particular battle, but sometimes we forget that David cut off the head of Goliath and carried it around like like a war trophy. We might think of David later in life, later in his life before he became king, living off the land, running from King Saul, leading that band of ragtag men and think of all the times when David was in battle and the number of times David was victorious in battle far far outweighed any times he was defeated in battle David knew strategy he knew how to wield several weapons he wanted to win and most of the time he did just that but in addition to being skilled in war David knew the place from which his victories came And Psalm 144, the one we read a moment ago, and I appreciate being willing to read all 15 verses of the psalm, but this psalm represents a psalm of praise and honor to God. David knew that the victories that he gained were not from his own hand alone. He knew that they were from the greatness of God. And personally, I think this is just one of many psalms or poems that David would have written or sung along these lines, along this topic, but this one is inspired, and so it's included in the canon of Scripture is Psalm 144. And so tonight what I want us to do is simply look at Psalm 144. And I want us to see how we can handle times when victory comes to us. We're not always victorious in life. But the follower of God must know how to handle himself or herself in every situation, including times when victory does come our way. And so Psalm 144 shows us how to handle times when pride could creep, in, keep, <laughs> could creep in. Instead, we need to focus on the Lord and on His faithfulness in granting us victory. And so notice Psalm 144 with me tonight under just two points. First of all, notice victory's cause in verses 1 through 8. If you are going to get online and Google the phrase, how to win at, and then just fill in the phrase with basically anything you wanted to, 
You would be inundated with articles, with book suggestions, with videos showing you how to be victorious in all sorts of things. You might want to be a more victorious chess player or win a favorite computer game. And in our information age, there is no end to the trips and to the the tricks that can help you be, be a winner at basically anything. But David, in the first half of Psalm 144, shares a very much simpler formula for his victories. In fact, it consisted of just two things. And even those two things were related. What were the causes of David's victory? Cause number one was that God is invincible. The first and the last verses of this section are all about how God simply cannot be defeated and how David had been strengthened by the Lord. Just in verses 1 through 2, look at those two verses. And in those two verses, God, David describes God in nine different ways. He is described as my rock. This is a very common image in the Bible, especially in the Psalms, because it would have meant simply the foundation for the poet, in this case, David. God was the one on whom David built everything, including his battles. The King James Version has my strength here, but rock probably seems to fit a little bit better because it was the foundation for everything else to follow, not only on this list, but in the entire poem. He was also described as my trainer. God trains or teaches for battle and war. You see, God does not just lay the foundation for David. God also provides the instruction for David. The Lord is behind and involved in every aspect of David's victory. Today, the Bible does that in a spiritual way for Christians. As God has given us everything we need to fight off our enemy, the devil. He is my rock. He is my trainer. He is also my steadfast love or goodness, the King James Version has. The Hebrew word here is the word hesed. It's found again and again and again in the Psalms. It's a word that carries with it the idea of those translations, steadfast love, goodness. It also carries with it the idea of loving kindness, of mercy, of covenanting together. It was the idea of God being in an all-encompassing way something upon which David could trust or someone in whom David could trust. God's love, God's mercy draw David even through times of battle and war. God is always present and always good, even when we might be in a time of spiritual battle. He is also my fortress. And considering that the imagery here is of a battle, what a beautiful picture this is. To be victorious, a fortress is extremely helpful. But also consider that David had done a lot of fighting while on the run in his life, and he probably at times longed for a true fortress, a place to regroup, a a place to have strategy meetings and those kinds of things. God provides that place of refuge. He is my fortress, and he is also my stronghold. Similar to a fortress, the stronghold here is probably an extension of that. In fact, scholars suggest that probably what is in mind here is the watchtower on top of the, the fortress. God not only gives us a safe place to go, but God provides further protection through watching out for us, through making sure that, we, that He is looking out for us in times of battle. Sixthly, He is my deliverer. I love that even before this list is done, David is already saying that God delivers. That is a level of trust that needs to be built into our character if we are going to be people who claim to truly, fully trust in God. God is David's only real deliverer in battle. 
And he's the only hope that we have of being delivered in our spiritual battles against our enemy, the devil. 1 Peter 5 and verse 8. He is also, number 7, my shield. The word here, Megan, is one for a small shield. And some may say, well, that doesn't make a very good picture because wouldn't you picture God as being a huge shield? Maybe David chose this word of a small shield to show an even higher level or deeper level of trust in God. He didn't need a huge shield. God provided all the protection David needed. Eight, he is my refuge. Even if a soldier or a battalion is making great progress, at times they need to rest. David's trust in God is not just while the battle is raging, while he's on the front lines. It's also when there's time to step back, to slow down, to take refuge. God is always there to help his people. And number nine, he is my reason for victory. The Lord is one, verse two, who subdues people under me. When victory came, David did not take all the credit. Instead, he gave the Lord the credit. Because through the training, the help, the protection, the rest, all the other things listed in those first eight descriptions, the Lord had led David through every step of the battle. And with all that in mind then, David takes the time to write words of praise that express the absolute power and the absolute majesty of God. Verses 5, 6, 7, and 8 are filled with imagery of how God is greater than armies. Phrases such as, send out your arrows and rout them. But also how God is greater even than all creation. Phrases such as, touch the mountains so that they smoke. David's trust in God is based in the fact that the Lord is greater than anyone or anything. And so even though David was a great warrior, he understood fully that he had to have the help of God to truly be victorious. And so you read in verse 7, Stretch out your hand from on high, rescue me, and deliver me from many waters, from the hand of foreigners. God is invincible. But tied to that, David also realized the cause for his victory was that man is inconsequential. Here is where the contrast comes into play. David is not saying that the enemies he was facing were not real. Pardon the double negative, that's the only way I knew how to say it. He needed, David did, the help of God to win battles. The enemies were real. But compared to the invincible power of God, whatever power man can muster is just child's play. It's just inconsequential. And it's interesting that David does not write specifically about his enemies, but about all people. Considering not just his enemies, but even himself, David says in verse 3, he asks, O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? David realized, even I'm nothing special, but God took care of him. And surely David's enemies were nothing special, but God still knew who they were. And in in his humility... David said in verse 4, Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Even when we are victorious, we need to avoid thinking that we're going to live on this earth forever because of what we have done or what we could do. Battles and competitions of all sorts have a way of making us think more of ourselves than we often think, especially when we're victorious in those things. Even if we are people of faith, we can begin to think we're invincible if we're not careful. But only the Lord is truly invincible. We will lose at some point, but God is always victorious. Too often, we struggle in life because we mix these two things up. We begin to think that we are the invincible part of the winning formula, 
And God is only there to to cheer on our amazing abilities. Sure, there are people who do amazing things, remarkable things. But it's child's play compared to the work of God. He is the only one who is truly invincible. And we can only be ultimately victorious in this life if we walk in the power of God. Victory's cause is that God is invincible and man is inconsequential. But David had more to say. And you see in the second half of the psalm, you also have victories cry. It's rare to find any sports team that does not have some kind of song. Nearly every school has an alma mater that might be played at the conclusion of every game. Most teams have some kind of fight song. Even the organ player leading the fans up, da-da-da-da, charge. Even that kind of stuff is meant to build the team up for victory. It's interesting. Some of those songs are pretty strange. Pardon me if any of you went to these schools, but the University of Utah... Their fight song does not exactly open with intimidating words. I am a Utah man, sir, and I live across the green. Our gang is the jolliest that you have ever seen. Boy, doesn't that strike fear in the hearts of the enemies. I guess they, had, they needed a rhyme for their fight song at the University of Bowling Green because the next line ends with, Make the contest keen. Wow. That'll celebrate a touchdown. But nothing is more confusing to me than the fight song of New Mexico State University, which ends with a cliffhanger. We'll win this game or know the reason why. Why what? You won or lost or tied. Why, why, what? Well, obviously, when we deal with things of greater importance, we take more care in what we say than these fight songs do. And so in David's poem, he ends the psalm in the second half with words of praise to God. It is, in reality, David's victory cry. It's written out of both experience, but also expectation. And the cry of David in victory falls into two parts. First, obviously, is praise to God in verses 9 through 11. As you might expect, David's victory cry is filled with these words of praise As one who often wrote poems and music, David filled these verses with both of those. He said, I will sing a new song to the Lord. He said, I'm going to accompany that on a ten-stringed harp. We don't know what this new song is that David had in mind, but you can almost see as he's writing this poem, you can almost see him composing the lines to a victory song elsewhere in his mind. But the praise is based upon how God has delivered victory to kings in general. But then David's focus focuses specifically on the way God has helped him. Verse 10, God rescues David, his servant, from the cruel sword. If you have a King James Version, you notice the word there instead of rescues is delivereth. And notice that little E-T-H on the end. It is in the present tense. David is saying, I know there is continual rescuing, continual deliverance that only the Lord can give. We don't know if David had in mind any specific threat against his life or his armies at this point in time. The scope of the psalm seems to be more generic, more generic as far as who I'm fighting or who I might be facing. But he knew, David did, that no matter who he might face, the Lord would deliver him through that. And as David ends this praise, he writes a request. He's not making the request in verse 11 because he suddenly doubts the Lord. Instead, I think he makes it because he's not going to presume upon God. David wants to show his total reliance on the Lord. And though he knows, as he's already said, that God will deliver, he still wants to show honor to the Lord by making the request. And notice that David in verse 11 makes clear 
that these are not just people that he doesn't personally like. These are the enemies of the Lord himself, and they show that through their actions. I think we need to be very careful at times that we don't ask God to act against people that we have nothing more than just a personality conflict with. God's deliverance should only be asked for those who are righteous against those who are truly unrighteous. But David gives praise to God, and then he ends the psalm with words that talk about prizes from God. David makes requests in verses 12 through 15, but he trusts that they're going to be given as a reward or a prize to the faithful. And there are three types of these prizes. First, there's the prize of family. Even when they're young, David asks that his sons, verse 12, be like plants full grown. He's basically seeking a maturity and a depth that's too often not seen in those who are younger. But that strength, when it's present, helps sustain more than a family. It helps sustain a nation. The request for daughters in verse 12 is that they be like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. That's a beautiful picture of a woman of strength, but in the strength of God. The request is not just that sons be strong and influential, but daughters as well. David knows the strength and the influence of faithful women, and he wants all of that for a future generation. So he sees the the prize of a family that's faithful, but he also sees the prize of fields. After seeing the well-being of the family, David then seeks economic well-being in the form of good, full harvests. Charles Spurgeon wrote, A household must have its granary as well as its nursery. Well, that wording might be a little old-fashioned. I think we get the point. From grain to sheep to cattle, David's request is for the great harvests of future generations, again, to continue the nation as well as the family. I don't believe that David was seeking some kind of Old Testament health and wealth gospel in his request. I think he's simply saying, I believe that God will prize the righteous as much as he possibly can. But also three, David requests the prize of freedom. Verse 14, may there be no cry of distress in our streets. You see a picture there of true delight and peace. When things are right in the family and when God grants the necessary food or fields for generation to come, people should behave in such a way that not only praises God, but that is also to the benefit and the safety of others. I want to read one quotation on this concept that's a little old-fashioned, a little lengthy, but I think it's good. No secret dissatisfaction, no public riot, no fainting of poverty, no clamor for rights denied, nor concerning wrongs unredressed. The state of things here pictured in Psalm 144 is very delightful. All is peaceful, all is prosperous. The throne is occupied efficiently, and even the beasts in their stalls are the better for it. End of quote. With all of that in mind, David then ends the poem with words that are a combination of praise and invitation in verse 15. Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. In those words, there is great praise. David is correct in that it is a great blessing to be in the Lord and to know that blessings only come from His hand to His people. But in those words, there is also an invitation For some who would have read these words then, and hopefully for us even now, when we're not following God as our Lord, we can give Him lip service, but is He truly a part of our life? If He is, we'll know the blessings that only He can give. But those who can join in the victory cry and know what it means to be ultimately victorious are those who can join David in these words. 
I considered ending this lesson tonight with a sports analogy. I've mentioned that a couple of times in the lesson already. I thought about, and I even did start out trying to find a, a story of some team that was way behind in a game and came back to win, or maybe a team that was just buried in the standings, only to make an amazing march to a championship. Anyone who follows the world of sports knows that, that those types of stories are all over the place, and they, they mesmerize us. They're, they're the kinds of stories that, that fans love to tell. But upon reflection, I thought, I, I, I didn't need to use that as an illustration for this reason. Any kind of illustration like that pales in comparison to the ultimate victory of God and his people. And that's true for a lot of reasons. But none greater than this. If we're on God's team, we've never been behind. It's not a comeback story. From the day Jesus rose from the dead until eternity comes, his side is the victorious side. There is no need to come back. There is no need for Him to make any kind of comeback. You see, when it comes to following God, it may at times seem as if God is silent. It may seem as if His way is not going to win. But ultimately, the Lord is always in total control. He's not really behind, to use the sports terminology, no matter what our perception might be. No matter how dark it may seem from our perspective, If we are with Him, in the end, we will be victorious. And all through life, we are victorious. It's not a matter of if. It's really just a matter of when. You see, it's not so much that I could find a story to talk about some team that came from way back. Instead, here's the good illustration. It's the team that's already ahead. And you're sitting in the stands... And all you're really doing is what that father told his son at a game a few years ago. They sat in the stands as their favorite team was up by several touchdowns. And the little boy asked, Dad, who won? The game's still going on. But the father in great wisdom looked at his son and said, Son, we already know who won. We're just waiting for the clock to run out. That's it. Those who are on Christ's side, we're just waiting for the clock to run out. We already are victorious. Tonight, are you on the team that's already won? Because you're on Christ's side. Do you know what it means to have that victory in your life? Because you've put Christ on in baptism. Join the team, the family that's already victorious. Let Christ add you to the church. And let's live our life working to help others be on the side that's just waiting for the clock to run out. Tonight, do you become a Christian? Do you need to return in faithfulness to the victorious team? Whatever your need is, we invite you to come as we stand and sing to encourage you.